Welcome to Living Love, the radio broadcast ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Benton, Illinois. Our desire is to live love to God, to others, and the nations. We hope this week's broadcast will bless and encourage you. Now, let's dive into God's Word and see how we can live love today. Today we are going to begin the Gospel of John. And... uh, We're just going to kind of walk through it on Sunday mornings for a while. Uh, We're going to eventually get to John chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first three verses. But actually, if you got your Bibles, turn to John 20 for a little bit. And uh, anytime you begin a a book of the Bible, uh, you have to spend a little bit of time about the background. You have to talk about the author. You have to talk about the time frame. Uh, Good biblical study. Good expositional preaching takes in all the the background so that you have a sort of a platform on which to understand what's being written. So we need to spend just a little bit of time in a moment thinking about John. do want to say a couple other things. Tonight, uh, we're going to pick up on the uh, five shortest books in the Bible. And the shortest book of all in the Bible is 2 John, a letter that John writes somewhat later on. And so that's what we're going to be looking at, 2 John tonight. It's only 245 words. It's the shortest Bible uh, book. The next one is 3 John, and then we have Obadiah and Jude, and we did Philemon uh, some time ago. So we'll get to all of those on Sunday nights. Next Sunday night is business meeting. Uh, Quarterly business meeting, there are two things. One, the building loan is up for renewal. And it's not a big deal, but it does need to be done, and there needs to be a vote by the church. And so we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about a a variety of other things. And then also there's going to be a a recommendation about remodeling the office and setting some money aside to do that. Those are the big things. And then we have some other things that I'll kind of clue you in about next week, but next Sunday night will be kind of an important time. Um, John is kind of a unique character. Uh, first of all, what we know from the New Testament about him is that he was the younger brother of James, and they were fishermen. They were the sons of Zebedee. Uh, eventually, they were called the sons of thunder. Now, that might have been a reference to their father, but probably had something more to do with their own personal behavior. Uh, John, without any question, is the youngest of all of the apostles. Uh, They were there with Peter and Andrew from the city of Bethsaida. And there was a moment in which Jesus found them out on the Sea of Galilee and he called them and asked them to follow and they followed. He uh, is identified as best we know as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And it's a little bit of an awkward thing. There's never really a clear statement about that, except in the very last few verses of John 21. Peter asks a question about someone, and he's identified as the disciple whom Jesus loved. What about him? And Jesus makes a statement, and then John in the gospel says, I was that disciple. And so that's kind of the connection. And we don't know what it was like, but if you imagine, and I've always tried to think about the 12. Uh, These are men hanging out together. And if you've ever been around men hanging out together, it can get a little wild sometimes. And John is the the young guy. And and, 
Uh, he doesn't die until probably 100 A.D., uh, 65, 70 years after Jesus dies and is risen again. So he had to be pretty young. He could have even been a teenager. He would have been a man of business early in those days, but he's certainly the youngest. And there was this unique relationship with him and Jesus. We, uh, we know that John was a part of the three, Peter, James, and John. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they go with Jesus a little farther. They go with Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration. They spend time with Jesus in a way that maybe no one else does. We know that, uh, that he was there at the crucifixion. We'll talk a little bit later, but, but we also know that Jesus entrusted him to take care of his mother, probably because he was the youngest. We know that, uh, that he in the book of Acts is a position of importance that when Paul goes to make his case in the city of Jerusalem for the Gentiles, that he presents his case to James, the brother of Jesus, and to Peter, and to John. We know that John, because he was so much younger, eventually was almost certainly the last of the apostles to be living in the world. Can you imagine if, if you got a letter from the last apostle, the last one who had been with Jesus? There's even some speculation because if you're talking 60 or 70 years after, he may have been very likely the last person on the planet to have actually physically been in the presence of Jesus. What a unique situation, what a unique place. When he writes 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, he writes those substantially later. He is a man of, of ultimate respect in the body of Christ, in the history of the church. He writes as the elder. We know that probably from church history that he ends up in the city of Ephesus. Some of the, the early church fathers write about him and about Mary. And evidently, he took Mary, the mother of Jesus, and at some point ended up in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, and, and in the city of Ephesus, and believed that's probably where Mary died, uh, very likely where John would have died. And there's some question about actually how his death came about, but he was still leading the early church, and he was writing letters, and he had a, a long-lasting influence for the cause of Christ, and certainly... We'll talk as we get into the letters of John about this idea of the great commandment. We know that, uh, that when he wrote what we know as the gospel of John, the other three gospels had already been written. In fact, the first three gospels, if you're not aware, almost certainly Mark was the first one to be written. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. It is the story of Jesus, basic, no extra interpretations, just tells the story. Matthew then comes along, and, and in both Matthew and Luke, there are portions word for word that are the same as they are in Mark. And maybe they took what Mark had already written, and Mark, we believe, John Mark, probably interviewed Peter, interviewed the other apostles, and he wrote his story, and then Matthew took it, and he began to write from his memories and what Mark wrote, but he particularly tailed it to reach Jews. He quotes the Old Testament over and over, and he talks about prophecy, and he, he uses stories that would help Jews to know who Jesus was and believe in Jesus. Luke, as a Gentile, we believe, interviewed other apostles, and he got their story, and he writes the story of Jesus Christ and really does it so that Gentiles, because Luke was a Gentile, 
And he writes it in such a way that Gentiles could understand and know who Jesus is. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all written. Sometimes they're called synoptic gospels. They're very similar. But John is different. John, because he writes later, and because of his unique relationship with Jesus, writes stories that none of the other gospels tell out. 75% of the gospel of John is not recorded in any of the other gospels. There are stories that you only find in John. There are things that we hold on preciously to Jesus that are only found in the Gospel of John. The seven I am's. Those seven statements where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the light of the world. There's seven times that Jesus says that. The only place they appear in the Gospel of John. That phenomenal 11th chapter of the Gospel of John where Jesus delays and Lazarus is dead and Jesus weeps. And then he calls Lazarus from the dead. That's only found in the Gospel of John. Maybe the base part about the Gospel of John is we know about the upper room. And if you remember, in the upper room, there's a specific statement that John was leaning on the breast of Jesus. He was sitting right next to Jesus during all the events of the upper room. So he hears what Jesus has to say to Judas, and he records that for us. And and he tells us in the Gospel of John, there is a section from about John 13 to John 17 that is called the Upper Room Discourse. And in that section, Jesus teaches and John records for us information that is not found any other place. Some of the most important teachings. We know more about the Holy Spirit from the upper room discourse, what Jesus said and John recorded. There's a whole lot of other things that John addresses, but he writes in such a unique way. But, but the main part of the gospel of John is that he is called John the Evangelist because the gospel of John is about people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 20, If uh, you look, and I believe it's verse uh, 30, start there. He's kind of getting down, and he's wrapping it up, and he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in Him, you may have eternal life. Now, that's one of the reasons why, and you've probably heard it, that if you want somebody to, to know about Jesus or they're going to start to read the Bible, don't start them in Genesis. Because they get to Genesis, Exodus, and then everybody dies in Leviticus. But if anybody's going to read the Bible, we point them to the Gospel of John. And if somebody really wants to know uh, an evangelistic Bible study, the Gospel of John, you always go to John because John is all about people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, as we walk through it, you'll discover that what John does, the way he tells the story of Jesus, he tells it through the eyes of individuals who meet Jesus. Andrew is going to meet Jesus. Peter is going to be then invited to meet Jesus. Nathaniel after Jesus meets Philip, is going to meet Jesus. Nicodemus in chapter 3 is going to have a conversation and he's going to meet Jesus. Jesus is going to meet a woman at the well and talk to her and there's a royal official and then the the man who's the cripple at Bethsaida and it's just one story after another of people encountering Jesus Christ and coming to faith and it's obvious that John, more than anything else, wants people to believe in Jesus. 
And he wants you to know Jesus, and he wants you to know who Jesus is. And it's all about introducing people to Jesus. And, and it's one of those books that you and I, if we're going to be involved in pointing people to Jesus, it's a book that you and I need to be familiar with. And I'm glad you're reading, uh, hopefully, the, the 100 days up to Easter as a church. But I would just tell you, at some point in your life, if you've never just sat down and read the Gospel of John, take a couple hours and do it, or, or maybe a, a matter of a week or two and, and just read two or three chapters a day and just allow this amazing story of God that has, and, and to be honest, I think there's probably more preaching out of the Gospel of John done than almost any other book. But it's all because it's about Jesus, that he wants people to know Jesus. And in the first chapter where we're eventually finally going to get to, there's what's called the prologue. And basically what he does is he introduces Jesus. And he does it in a phenomenal way. And it's, it's one of those masterpieces of literature in some respect. But he ends up introducing someone, and he doesn't tell you his name. He's the Word. He was in the beginning, and we're going to read that in just a moment. But he doesn't mention the name of Jesus until verse 17. And he simply begins this story about somebody, and he's drawing the reader in because what he wants them to see is not him. He's not interested in anything else. He wants people to meet Jesus. So let's look at the first chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. I want to just stop there for a few minutes. First of all, understand that John is now writing, Matthew had his certain, try and reach Jews, Luke had his, try and reach Gentiles, Mark had his purpose, John is trying to reach everybody. And in these first three verses, there are things for everybody. If you are a Jew and you picked up the Gospel of John and you began to read it, immediately you would not read those first few words without immediately going back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. And when he starts in the beginning, he changes it just enough to get their attention. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And if you're Jewish, you're saying, well, okay. So God was in the beginning. Now Jesus or, or whoever this guy is, the Word is with him. And, and the Word was God. Now that's a bigger statement. But this Word, this one that he's wanting you to meet, he's introducing you to this special person. This person was with God and he was with God and he was there at the beginning, he was a part of creation, and all of the miracle of creation, he's a part of. So he's drawn in all the Jewish people. The Gentiles are drawn in by the word lagos, the word, the word. In the beginning was the word. The Greeks, the Gentiles, they were all influenced by the Greek philosophies and Greek philosophers and everyone from Socrates to Plato. And the, the reality was they really didn't do the Greek gods much anymore. They'd kind of moved that. But in Greek philosophy, they pretty much always were enamored with the idea of creation. They're astrologers. They're people who just saw the, the wonders of the world. And they, they basically would say, we don't know how the world got made, but we know there had to be something 
at the beginning. There had to be something there that we don't understand and we can't put a name to. There was some philosophical concept, some power, some presence that was a part of creating the world and something that sort of holds the world together. And they didn't really know what it was and they couldn't explain it, but they called it the Lagos. And that was a basic part of all Greek philosophy. That was the way that they taught and that was a part of the educational systems of the ancient world. This thing, the Lagos. In fact, I heard one guy describe it. As far as they understood, it was kind of like the super glue that, that held the world together. Got the world started and held it together and they knew there was something. I mean, they just looked at the universe just like... God says all of us can look at the universe. You know there's something there, and whether you know the name of that something or not, you can't deny there's this presence and this power that's a part of the world, and the Greeks all understood that. And when he says, in the beginning was the Lagos, every one of them would sit up and listen and say, maybe I need to read a little more. And then they said, and the Lagos was with God. Now all the, the Jews are saying, well, okay, and, and the Gentiles are saying, well, Maybe. They weren't too sure about God. They'd kind of gotten over Zeus and Hera and Merc, some of those gods. They'd gotten over those, but they would have said, well, maybe there's something to that. And they would have listened. And, and then they would have said, and the Lagos was a part of creating the world. And they would have drawn into that. You understand that in these first three verses, he is drawing them in. He has begun in, in an inspired way by God's own gift. There's this inspiration that everyone in his day who picked up this book and began to read it, they would be drawn in to say, I don't know who he's talking about, but I want to read a little more. And in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some of the more stuff that he says, and, and he's going to continue on. And then finally, he's really going to blow their minds when he gets to verse 14, and he says, oh, and by the way, the word that, that has been a part of creation, and the word that holds the world together, and, and the word that has life, and the word that is light, and, and the word that other people have given testimony to, by the way, that word became flesh. That's kind of his Christmas story. That's how Jesus came into the world. That's what it's all about. That the word that was God and was with God came into the world and became flesh. And then finally in verse 17, he's going to say, oh, and by the way, his name is Jesus the Christ. And then he's immediately be going to begin telling about individuals who have met Jesus and what happens in their life. Now, I've kind of gotten a lot of other stuff in today, but let me just make a suggestion that one of the first things that you learn in the gospel of John is that the God we have is a God of new beginnings. There's clearly a statement that goes back to Genesis. In the beginning, God. I don't know if you're aware, even before you get to in the beginning, God, and the next phrase is created the heavens and the earth. But in the Hebrew, it's in the beginning, God. In other words, you can't go back and get behind God. Every, if you want to think about the world we live in, you always start with God. God was at the beginning. The Lagos was at the beginning. And now John is saying, I'm ready for a new beginning. And the greatest of all the new beginnings is what you meet Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what Jesus is going to say when he gets to Nicodemus on chapter 3. By the way, you need to start over. You need to be born again. 
And he didn't quite understand it at first and eventually does. But there's a sense of the new beginning. And more than anything else, John wants you and I to know that whatever our life has been, wherever we were, when Jesus came into the world, things changed. Things began again. And today we have a God who is the God of new beginnings. And if you and I are sinners, if you and I know that we need something desperately that we don't have, Jesus is the answer. And John, more than anything else, wants you to understand that Jesus is the one who makes all things new. He's the one who that changes our sin and transforms our past and creates us to be new creatures in Christ Jesus who allows us to become new in Him. That's what He wants. There's new beginnings. And frankly, all of us sometimes need new beginnings. Some of us need second chances. In fact, even if you become a believer and you can go to a time some years ago when things all began because you met Jesus Christ and you have a story. In fact, I love this idea that John pretty much is saying, let me tell you about this person who met Jesus and this person who met Jesus and this person. And by the way, you're the next person that needs to meet Jesus. And that's kind of what it's all about. That's why he's the evangelist. But even once we become believers, don't we sometimes need new beginnings? I mean, sometimes it's artificial, but a new year, the idea of new resolutions or that concept just basically says that all of us sometimes need to stop and look at where we are and say, you know what? I need something new. I need something fresh. I, where, I, where I've been is not where I need to be. And sometimes I, I kind of like the question, if you as a believer can go to a time in your Christian life where you are closer to Jesus and more excited about Jesus than you are today, then maybe today you need a new beginning. Maybe you need a new touch. Maybe you need to have this concept of of renewal and refreshing and starting over and getting a second chance. And I'm kind of glad God does second chances and third chances and 57th chances. And he's just pretty gracious. His mercy endures forever. And he is constantly there. And wherever we're at, he's able to say, yes, you can by the power of God. And, And you understand, new beginnings are not easy. I mean, some of you are stubborn. I mean, you know, mule-headed in the dictionary has your picture by some of you. I mean, and yes, I, I'm going to do it. I'm, you know, and some of you have been very successful in life because you just suck it up and you, I'm going to do it and I can do it. But I want to tell you, there's some things you can't do on your own. There's some changes that you can't make. There are some things that need to change and be different. And sometimes our lives need to go in new directions. And you and I are not able to do it on our own. But there is a person, a word, who was God and with God and who was a part of crutching the entire world and making new things to happen. There is a creative presence and power in Jesus Christ that can indeed transform you and I. And change us from the inside out in a way that we could never imagine being changed on our own. Things that you and I cannot do for ourselves, Jesus Christ is able to do. He is the God of new beginnings. And when John begins to tell the story, that's almost the first thing he says, I need to introduce you to somebody who can transform and change the world, and he can change you and me. There's also, I think, in the very beginning, this idea of meaning, of purpose, the logos, that which holds the world together, 
that, that thing that just sort of makes sense, that you and I can't maybe explain and understand, but something that gives my life meaning and purpose, and that is something bigger than me and bigger than the world because it has the world in its own control. And there's this idea when sometimes when COVID is crazy and it's the new year and jobs and things are difficult and when everything in my life is maybe out of control and things aren't going the way I want them to go, there is a God who is the Lagos who can hold things together. And when you and I are falling apart, when you and I maybe don't know how we're going to face tomorrow, what we're going to do the next day, there is a God who is the Lagos who, and, and, and frankly, if you're out of control, you need the Lagos. If you're struggling with where your life is headed and what you're going to be doing, you have a Lagos. You, you have someone who brings meaning to life. And, and the truth is, there are folks looking for meaning all the time. I, a few years ago, there was a book came out, The Search for Significance. And it was really based on the idea that every one of us have something deep within us that we want to do something that gives meaning to our life and people are searching for it and it's in what you buy and what kind of job you have and what kind of position and what kind of control and, and, and where people are looking for meaning and significance in all different kinds of places. And it's very subtle, but I think that John is saying if you're looking for meaning, you're never going to find it until you find it in Jesus, that he's the one who holds life together. If things are falling apart and you're not sure where you're going or what you're going to do, then you need him because he makes meaning. Then there's a final thing, this idea of the word. I, I don't know that I understand that. The Greeks believed that a spoken word had power, that a spoken word lived. It was a living thing. And the Jews thought the same thing, that when God created the world, he spoke. And God said, the words came out of, God said, let there be light, and there was light. This concept of God speaking, the word of God coming out, the Greeks had the same idea. They, they valued the words, and they recorded every word that Plato and Socrates and Aristotle, I mean, they, they understood the value of the spoken word, and it was connected to the logos and this, this presence and power in the world. They believed it. This idea that the word, when it was spoken, had its own power. If you remember the story of Balaam, where Balaam was hired to curse the nation of Israel, and when he got there, God evidently changed his mouth, and words came out not of curse but blessing, and the guys who paid him said, take that back. He said, I can't. Once it's been said, it has its own presence, its own power. That's why when you get to Isaiah, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth it will never return to me void because the word, there's something powerful about that. And it's almost as a backdrop as he begins this, he says, you need to be paying attention to this concept of the word. Today, we're here and we've been discussing the written word. But the written word is filled with the living word who is Jesus. And this word is empowered by the spirit of God. That God speaks, and when God speaks, there's always something powerful. And it's the idea that when someone picks up the gospel of John, because it's the written word of God, and it's all of testimony to the living word of God, who is Jesus, and it is blessed by the Spirit of God, that when you and I read, it is the 
Word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the Word of God that is inspired, that God has breathed into it, that you are a journey of reading about the Word of God, and there is a power in the Word of God that maybe is the power to change. I mean, to be very honest, that's part of the, the concept of encourage somebody to read the Gospel of John. And they begin to read about the living Word in the written Word. And the Spirit of God is inspired it and moves in it and people come to faith in Christ because of that. And so here's kind of the final concept today. This is all about God speaking. And today, I know this is a different kind of sermon. It was a little bit more like a seminary class. I understood that. By the way, there will be no test. At least not on the first part. But there is an ultimate test on the last part. And the last part is whether or not God has been speaking today in this service through His Word. Whether or not the presence of God has been in this room, whether or not God has somehow spoken to you about something in your life, about, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time, but man, I need something new. I need a fresh touch. I I need a new beginning. I've allowed some habits to to creep into my life. There's some other habits I used to have that were good, godly habits, and I've kind of let those diminish, and I'm not spending time in the Word of God. I'm not spending time introducing people to Jesus. You know, there's this time where I was really closer to Him, and I really kind of need a new beginning. And if today God is saying that to you, then it's the invitation. Thank you for joining us for this week's broadcast of Living Love. If this message has impacted you in any way, please let us know. If you would like to contact us, find out more about our church, or if you'd like to support our mission, visit ibcbenton.com. That's ibcbenton.com. Or give us a call at 618 439 3513